Well, greetings. We here we are back in uh, Ecclesiastes, and uh, what we did, <clears throat> excuse me, for the intro, is we looked at verses one through eleven and saw how those verses are the writer's um, thesis abstract. That is his 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 hook, his opening statement. And we saw, as we read those 11 verses, particularly 3 through 11, that although nature seems to be at the forefront of that passage, um, it is actually not nature that the writer is talking about. In fact, as we can see from several clues in the passage, he's talking about man. And uh, we made the case for this opening statement being the writer saying that man is impermanent, man is transient, and the life uh, that man lives, therefore, is, uh, is beneath him. <clears throat> it is not equal to him. And this troubled the writer who we'll call the teacher. It troubled the teacher. Uh, now we take a look at uh, who the teacher is. And, um, of course, the, the passage, the uh, first, uh, the first uh, uh, little bit of Ecclesiastes does uh, say some things about him. Uh, verse 1 <clears throat> in chapter 1 and also verse 12 um, about midway through the book, uh, he mentions himself again, talks about himself again. And then at the end of the book, um, chapter 12, and for a couple of verses there in chapter 12, he refers to himself one more time. The problem, however, is he never gives his name. And <clears throat> that is a problem uh, in, in some ways. In some ways, that's, that's a problem for us. And um, it's a problem because we don't know, therefore, who wrote it. And um, although tradition tells us it was Solomon, there is, among Bible scholars, a lot of pushback about it being Solomon. Uh, the, 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 the theologians and, and some of the critics <clears throat> do not want it to be Solomon. And they offer, they offer uh, three objections, primarily. One is that he, the name is never mentioned. So, um, on that basis alone, everyone would agree that we can't be, um, we can't be dogmatic about who, who wrote it. It doesn't say. We, we can't tell for sure. But the second um, argument that is raised is that the language of the book is post-exilic. That is, that the kind of Hebrew that we find in Ecclesiastes is not of the style that is expected for the period that Solomon would have lived in, which is about 900 BC. Instead, the type of uh, Hebrew is more like um, after the Babylon cap captivity, the Hebrew that is, um, that is observed at that time is more like uh, 600 BC. So about a 300-year uh, uh, difference um, later, you know, 300 years later. So those are, those are two. And then the third, um, the third objection that scholars have is that, um, and it's an odd one, it's an odd one, is that in uh, chapter 5, the writer... Uh, who, when he's talking uh, about the middle of chapter 5, he's talking about um, leaders, leaders in society, and he, he basically uh, denigrates them, he disses them. And the critic would say, well, that's not something that a king would, you know, a king would do. Uh, king Solomon probably would not have done that, they say, because he would not be uh, willing to um, diss his own kind. I think that's a pretty weak argument. 
And um, really, uh, those three arguments, uh, I think there's a lot you can say about them. And so we'll, let's go ahead and look at a few things that uh, we can say um, that I think are worth looking at. So to begin with, <clears throat> when he says in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Let's stop right there. How many people, we have to ask ourselves, don't we? How many people can it be said about them that they were of the line of David and king in Jerusalem? I don't think that many. Not that many. We can't count Saul, because although, although he was the first king of Israel, he was not of David's line. He was of Benjamin's. He was the line of Benjamin. Uh, can we say it about David? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Can we say it about Solomon? Yes, we can. So there's two people. Now, after Solomon was his son Rehoboam. And the difficulty with Rehoboam is... Um, he wasn't king over a united Israel for very long. I don't know how long, but it wasn't very long. Um, the text in Scripture seems to indicate f that the split happened pretty, pretty much as soon as he was on, as he was on the throne. So um, I'm not sure we can count him. But even if you do count him, that's only David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. So how many choices? How many choices? It sounds to me like if you're in the line of David and you're king in Jerusalem, <clears throat> uh, assuming a, a united uh, uh, kingdom, um, you only have three choices. And really, practically, I think it's, it's down to two. <clears throat> now, if you take Jerusalem as being the, uh, the northern kingdom, um, I, don't, I don't think there's any reason to do that. Um, but at any rate, so there's that, um, that, 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 that tends to, uh, give us a lot of, uh, weight, a lot of weight to the, uh, idea that this is Solomon. But I think there's some more things, and I want to point those out. In chapter one <clears throat> of Ecclesiastes, over in, um, verse 16, so chapter one, verse 16, the writer the teacher, says to, he says uh, in verse 16, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind was, has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. <clears throat> now, keep your finger there and uh, flip back to 1 Kings, and we'll be doing this uh, uh, a few times, so uh, keep uh, keep your place in First Kings as well. But over to First Kings chapter three, and we look at verse twelve, and this is God talking to um, Solomon, and He says, "Behold, I have done according to your words." This is three twelve. I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you nor shall one like you arise after you. And let me remind you, back in Ecclesiastes 1.16, what did the writer say about himself? I was magnified more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. Interesting. Interesting. We see that again. That's his wisdom. We see that again about his fame. Again, hold your finger in First Kings. And go back to Ecclesiastes and look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and look at verse 9. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. Okay? Well, now it's going to be uh, Chronicles, which is uh, just the next book over from Kings. And we're going to look at First Chronicles and we'll go over to chapter 29. which is the last chapter, First Chronicles chapter 29. And go down to verse 25, and it says, And the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel, 
and bestowed on him royal majesty, which had not been on any king before him in Israel. And the reminder in this case, back to two, uh, Ecclesiastes 2.9, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Do you see, Do you see the connection? All right, let's look at another one. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter two, just go two verse, uh, chapter two, just go two verses up to verse seven. He says, "I bought male and female slaves, and I had a homeborn slaves, and I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem." Okay, go over to First Kings, and this time we'll look at chapter four, and we'll go down to verse twenty-three. Uh, start at verse tw uh, 20, uh, 21. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. This is his um, provision, it says in verse 22. His provision for one day. One day. Look at the animals again, 23. Verse 23. 10, 20, and 100. All right, let's remind ourselves back in Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verse 7. Middle of the verse, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And there's a lot more. There's actually quite a bit more uh, that we can uh, see here uh, as, as uh, parallels between how the writer of Ecclesiastes describes himself and how Solomon uh, was described. <clears throat> so, back to Ecclesiastes. And we've been looking at verses 1 and 12 where uh, he initially uh, talks about himself. And um, it's time to look at something else, and that is the word preacher. The word uh, preacher is actually um, the Hebrew word kolabet. Kolabet, that's how it's pronounced, kolabet. It's spelled Q-O-L-E-H-E-T-H, but it's, it's pronounced kolabet. And what the word actually means, uh, it comes from the Hebrew uh, root word, uh, uh, kolal, which is an assembly. And so kolabet is actually he who presides, or he who heads up an assembly. And um, that could be... That could be a teacher, it could be a preacher, it could be, you know, a master of ceremonies. I mean, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, different versions of the Bible actually have um, different um, words there. But a lot of them have the word preacher. A lot of them do. Um, and, uh, and that's fine. That, that's a good thing. Um, but the word teacher... I think is a, is 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 the best of them all, and um, and and I think that's what we'll use as we go through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, there's something else that comes from this word preacher, and that is the fact that, you know, in the Old Testament, what the Hebrews did, what the Jews did, when they named the books of the Old Testament, not every time, but often they named them from the first verse of the book. For example, Genesis. I don't know how many people know this, but the book of Genesis is not Genesis in the Hebrew Bible. It's Breshit. It's Breshit. And Breshit means the beginning. And that comes from the first uh, sentence of that book, in the beginning. Uh, similar, similarly with Exodus and and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the names of those books um, are not those names to the Jews because those names are Greek and the Jews uh, did not use them. 
And of course, the question is, well, why why are there Greek names for the Hebrew uh, Bible books? And there's a very good uh, very good reason for that, and that is the fact that um, when the Jews were um, taken captive, and you know, eventually they uh, you know came back from uh, various places of captivity, Babylon among them. Um, they were found in pockets, you know, throughout the world. And one of those pockets was in Egypt. And in the days of Alexander the Great, um, Egypt had been conquered and had been basically made Greek, so to speak. That's what, where the city name of Alexandria uh, comes from, is, the, is from Alexander the Great. And some of the Jews were found in Egypt, and those Jews, like many of them, had pretty much lost, not to a huge degree, but to some degree they had lost their culture. And they had lost their, um, even their language. They didn't really know Hebrew very well. So the king at the time, King Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy II, uh, in the range of years between 300 and 200 BC, he commissioned the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And he did that for them. And because the team of translators was actually uh, 72 people, um, at least the story goes, there's some dispute about the exact number and exactly how that came to be. That's why the uh, translation uh, came to be called the Septuagint, because that's, actually it's from Latin, and it, then it's kind of Grecianized into another word, but it means a translation of the 70. And because of that, all the Hebrew, uh, all, the, all the original Hebrew scriptures uh, became, you know, uh, became available in a Greek translation for the use of the, uh, you know, dispossessed uh, uh, Jews. And, um, Thus, the names of the books were even changed. Again, that's where Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, that's where those names came from. And similarly, that's where the book of the title of the book of Ecclesiastes came from. Ecclesiastes is nothing more than Kolobet translated into Greek. So Kolobet, which means preacher, uh, and you can see that's in the very first line, verse 1 of the book, that became the name of Kolobet is actually the name of Ecclesiastes in Hebrew, but in Greek, it's Ecclesiastes. Now, the next question you might have is, well, why does our Bible today, our English Bible, why does it have all these Greek titles? And that's because of the influence of the Septuagint. The Septuagint had a huge influence on subsequent translations, subsequent um, um, assembling of the Bible. For example, um, you may have heard before that the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you may have heard that in the Jewish Bible, they're actually not 1st and 2nd Samuel, but just one. And 1st and 2nd Kings, but just one Kings. And 1st and 2nd Chronicles, like we have, but only one Chronicles. And that's true. And the reason is, the reason they became two in our Bible is because when... Ptolemy's uh, uh, plan of making the Greek, Greek uh, scriptures from the Old Testament, um, when he did that, you know, the Hebrew doesn't have vowels. There are no vowels. So when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, they, you know, the, the scrolls became much larger because of all the, you know, vowels that the Greek has. And that basically doubled or more the size of each of those books. And because of that, and because of, you know, the scrolls and the limited space on what were then books or scrolls, they had to divide them in two. So that's how we, uh, so the Septuagint actually was the cause of us having 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Isn't that interesting? I think it is. Something else the Septuagint did, and this is just briefly, we're not going to go into all the the different things, but just a couple more things. One is 
Another thing the Septuagint did is that it became the, the Old Testament that was most in use in Christ's day. So the Lord Jesus and the apostles and all the believers during that time, you know, including, you know, much later Paul, you know, 20, 20 plus years later Paul, um, they all used the Septuagint as their scriptures. You know, in the, in the early days, that's all they had. That was, that was it. Until It wasn't until much later before the New Testament began to be assembled. Um, so that... When you see the old, when you see the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, for example, the book of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, which has a ton of Old Testament uh, references, um, many of them from the Psalms. When you um, see those quotes in Matthew, and if you have a Bible with uh, you know margin notes it'll refer back to the Old Testament passage. And you flip back there and you read it and you go, well, it's a little bit different. I mean, not different to the point that it changes the gospel, not different to the point that it, that it affects your faith, but it does read a little bit different. And that's the reason. It's because when the New Testament writers quoted the Old Testament, they were actually reading the Septuagint when they quoted it. They weren't reading the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. So there's another thing that happened because of the Septuagint. And one more thing. Today, the Septuagint, I have a copy, and you can also read it online. It's available online in English. Uh, the Septuagint is considered by many Bible scholars today sort of a super commentary. That is, um, because it gives insight, it gives much insight into how the thinking was during, during you know, 200 years before Christ and, and, and beyond, um, how the Jews at that time actually interpreted what were then, to them, very ancient Hebrew texts. So we have that added insight, it, it, and it is kind of a super commentary, it definitely is. So... That's where uh, the name for the book of Ecclesiastes came from. And that is uh, all about the, um, or as much as we want, at least for now, to get into uh, about the uh, writer. Which from now on, I'll just say, I'll just say teacher. Now, <clears throat> before we leave the subject of the teacher, uh, I do want to um, address a couple of things. Um... Whether or not it is Solomon, we can't say. We've already um, said that. We've already addressed that. But let's do two things. Let's look at the apparent faith of the writer of Ecclesiastes, regardless of who it is, and then we'll maybe spend a few times, look a few min a few moments, looking at Solomon, uh, supposing uh, he was the writer. So first, the, the faith of the writer. Uh, flip way back to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. And I want to I show you something there. Ecclesiastes 12, and look at verse 5. Ecclesiastes 12, 5. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place, and of terrors on the road, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, the keeper is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners, mourners go about in the street. <clears throat> we'll get there eventually, but he's describing the, the breakdown of the body, you know, old age, very, very poetically. But, but don't overlook something at the very end of that passage. Man goes to his, what? His eternal home. Now, this is interesting because it is in contradiction to what much to much of what the writer has said earlier, much of what the teacher has said in earlier passages in this book, where he has said things like that sound like, you can't tell if a person goes to heaven or not, you can't tell if an animal and a man, you know, aren't exactly the same in, in, in at the end of their life. I mean, that's the way it reads. There's some verses that read that way, they sound that way, but we'll see later, taken in context, that's not what he's saying. But it does look like it. 
you know, at first glance. But here, this should tell us something in this verse here. This writer, the teacher, did believe in an afterlife. There's no doubt about it. He believed in an afterlife. For man, of course. Now drop down two verses, still in chapter 12. And we read, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the, what? Spirit will return to God who gave it. Once again, in stark contrast, seemingly, with a superficial reading from, you know, of the other verses, um, seemingly in, in, in contradiction, at odds with what he has said before, and what we tend to think of when we read much of Ecclesiastes is, is it, you know, in, in a very negative uh, view. This is a faithful man. This is a man of faith. And I'll bring to your attention a few more places where we have proof that the writer, whoever he is, is not a disgruntled, backsliding, um, you know, unfaithful man. He's, he's, he's not that. For example, let's flip around a bit. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, a pivotal verse, in fact, a pivotal verse. Chapter 2, verse 24, 2.24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. Many significant things about this verse. Number one, this is the first time he mentions God. It's taken him till almost the end of chapter 2 before he brings up God by name. But he'll continue to mention God throughout, over 30 times in this book. This is not a godless man. This is not a man that doesn't believe in God. But notice something else. He is ascribing to God something, and that is giving. He says God gives. God gives to us, gives gifts. And there's something even more important than that. Verse 24, as I mentioned, is the pivotal point in this book. And what it is, is, you know, in 1 through 11, in chapter 1, he's given us his thesis abstract. In chapter 2, he actually starts to explain some of his meditations, his ruminations. I've called it his research. But be even better would be his meditations. And then... At, at, the, at the end of his considering his, his meditations, he then stops and he really changes course in verse 24. And in verse 24 he says, in essence, despite how inhospitable life appears to be for man, I know God did this in love and in faith, and he's asking us only to be faithfully content. That's what he's saying. Verse 24, There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself his labor is good. This also I have seen. It is from the hand of God. He's saying your job, reader, your job, believer, is to be content, is to work on contentment. And let me tell you something. He says this eight times in these 12 chapters. Eight times. He brings us to the point where he says, despite the way things look, despite how harsh life appears to be, despite life being broken, God calls us to contentment. He calls us to the kind of trust in him that doesn't react to everything we see and everything we feel in life, but to instead cultivate contentment. And as we go through the book, we'll come back to that theme uh, many times. As I say, he mentions it eight times. Seven more times uh, after this one. So let me, look, let me show you something else. In chapter 3, which, by the way, uh, which, by the way chapter 3 is really a, 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 a sermon on the sovereignty of God. The first half of chapter 3 is about the sovereignty of God. And we'll, we'll see that in a little while. Um, but in chapter 3, look over at verse 14. He says something interesting. He says, verse 14, chapter 3, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. 
He'll use this phrase three times in this book, and he'll allude to the, the notion more times than that. But the actual phrase, fear God, chapter 3, chapter 8, and chapter 12, he, he, he calls on men, he, he, he recommends to men, to reader, to the reader, to fear God. Is this a faithless person? No. No, this is not a faithless person. Uh, in fact, although commentators on the book of Ecclesiastes have found it very hard to see the gospel, remember what Jesus said. Remember what Jesus said. He said that in every book, and at that time when he was saying it, all they had was the Old Testament. He's saying in every book of Scripture, it speaks of him. That's what he said. In every book of Scripture, that Scripture speaks of him. Well, that means that although the Old Testament uh, believers, who, by the way, Jesus later says about them that they're Christians, and that bothers some people, I'll admit that, that bothers people, but he does, he does say they're Christians. He said, he said Abraham was a Christian, he said Isaiah was a Christian, he said Moses was a Christian. He does say that. There's some interesting verses where you can see that. Now, so the gospel has to be somewhere in Ecclesiastes. Now, it's not going to be in the same form that we're expecting. It, there's, the name of Jesus Christ is not in Ecclesiastes. But the pattern of the gospel is definitely there. For example, in John 16, we have Jesus saying that the Holy Spirit, that the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And guess what? The writer of Ecclesiastes says the same thing. He mentions those three things. In fact, in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, we have probably the most material or the most um, bricks, if you like, with which to pave the road to the gospel. Yes, the path of the gospel is in Ecclesiastes. For example, uh, in chapter 7, the writer, the teacher, mentions the fall, the fall of man. In chapter 9, he mentions, uh, the writer mentions original sin, and he re refers to sin's penalty, that it requires a payment. The, sins requ the sin requires a payment. Yes, yes indeed. The final uh, thing I want to mention about the writer uh, of Ecclesiastes, uh, whoever he is, and his evident faith, is the fact that from, ver from chapter 5 to the rest of the book, 5 through 12, chapters 5 through 12, he essentially gives us a sermon, believe it or not. It's a 12-point sermon, and um, we'll eventually cover that. And in that sermon, there's one theme all throughout. Now, he gives us different, the reason there's 12 points is he gives us different aspects and different uh, bits of advice. But that sermon is really about contentment. It's about contentment. It's about allowing God to be God. It's about allowing God the right to do with creation what he has done. Yes. And in fact... I think we mentioned this last time, but in fact, not only is it a sermon, 5 through 12, uh, a sermon on contentment, it is also in many ways a commentary on a passage in Romans. Yes, Romans. More than a thousand years before the Apostle Paul wrote Romans, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying the very same thing. And in fact, we'll spend some time breaking that down and looking at the connections, looking at the parallels. But for a moment, for this moment only, look at chapter 8 of Romans. Chapter 8 of Romans. 
And look at uh, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Paul says, you know, the fall happened, and that fall corrupted creation. It did a number on creation. And it says that God turned that into a project. He, he took that creation, and he kind of made it into a, a project. And it says at the end of that verse, it says, Him who subjected it in hope. Well, we find in Ecclesiastes the explanation of that verse. That creation being subjected to fertility for a, a special purpose. And we find in Ecclesiastes that special purpose is to draw men to God. By the way, that word futility there in Romans 8.20 um, is a certain Greek word. And in the Septuagint version of Ecclesiastes, uh, that word appears, the exact same word in, in Ecclesiastes. Again, we'll, uh, we'll expand on that and spend more time on it now. Now let's, let's, let's consider the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes and let's, um, let's look at Ecclesiastes as if Solomon uh, wrote it. And we just have a couple more things to say about Solomon and then we'll have to, uh, we'll have to stop. I believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. And, and, and at this point, <clears throat> that's, that's my opinion. That's, that's my opinion. Because I can't prove it. I've given you some uh, pretty, good, um, pretty good ideas or defenses against uh, the notion that it wasn't Solomon. You know, traditionally, the church has believed it's, that it's Solomon, and the, and the, and the Jews never, have never doubted it. Um, in fact, there's a funny little story about the Jews including Ecclesiastes in their Bible originally that says that basically they included it because they believe Solomon wrote it because of certain, um, certain concepts and ideas and, and sayings that are in the book that to them felt like Solomon, despite the fact that they didn't understand the book. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but I believe it, I believe it's Solomon. Now let's look at Solomon. Again, we can't be dogmatic, but I, I believe it. I believe it's him. Let's look at look at look at Solomon for a moment. And I think one of the neatest things about uh, turning to look at Solomon, I think the best place to begin is in 1 Kings chapter 8. I recommend this strongly. I strongly recommend that anyone who is curious uh, about Solomon in general or about uh, you know his faith, faith and faithfulness, um, I strongly recommend that you start at 1 Kings chapter 8, where is found uh, a prayer. And this is Solomon uh, praying a prayer, and it's a long, long passage. It's uh, over. It's over. Uh, uh, it's about fifty verses. And so we won't. You know, I won't read the whole thing. But this is the prayer that Solomon gave at the dedication of the temple. And in this prayer. Solomon says things like, We know, Lord, that you don't live in a building. He says, You've made me king over this people, and all I want is for you to help me lead them. He says, I don't know whether I'm coming or going. He actually says that. I don't know whether I'm coming or going, and I'm a child before you. And then he goes on and he says, 
Lord, we know what kind of people we are, and we know we're prone to sin, and we beg you to have mercy when we sin. And when we come back to you, and even if you discipline us, which we know you will, please then turn your love toward us again. And you know what? That that has to be, in my mind, that's the highlight of, of Solomon's life, that prayer. Because if he meant that, and I think he did, um, that, that is the, the greatest single expression of faith that you, you, could, you could find. So now, we're not looking at the writer of Ecclesiastes as to who he is, we're looking at the writer of Ecclesiastes assuming it's Solomon, just for the sake of, of looking at Solomon. And I, and I really, really recommend you read this prayer. And um, it is just a fantastic prayer. It really is. It really is. Uh, let me see. Talks about his father David, verses 17, 18, and 19. Um, let's see. Uh, talks about God not needing a house to live in. Uh, listen to verse 28, chapter 8, verse 28, First Kings. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant, and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee today. Verse 30, And listen to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel. When we prayed toward this place, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes the oath before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven and act and judge thy servants. You see, you see what's going on here? It's just magnificent. 35, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, and they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin, when thou dost afflict them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servant. Do you see that? 37, when there's a famine, 38, whenever prayer or supplication is made. 39, hear in heaven. 40, that they may fear you all the days that they live. It's just a magnificent, magnificent prayer. So we see, at least at one time, the faith of Solomon. Let's flip back, still in 1 Kings, flip back to chapter 3. And chapter 3 has both good and bad both good and bad. And we have to look at both. We have to look at both about Solomon. So chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3, 1 Kings. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. And then it says, except. Except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Verse 4, latter part of the verse, offered a thousand burnt offerings. So God is saying, Solomon loved the Lord, except for, offer, he, he turned to idols. He turned to idols. Now we know that, we know what happened there. Hold your finger there and jump over to chapter 11 of 1 Kings chapter 11. And we know what happened because it says in chapter 11, go down to verse 3, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, that's his harem, and his wives did what? Turned his heart away. Verse 4, for it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as a heart of David his father had been. And then, and then we have the worst. We have the worst. Verse 5, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidian uh, Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon, verse 6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not father his Lord did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. It's interesting 
that, you know, you had the divided kingdom after Rehoboam. And so you had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Uh, Israel was in the north, and Judah, the smaller piece, or what they say is the tribes of Israel in the north. And then we had Judah, the single tribe in the south. And what we have there is a divided kingdom. And throughout Kings and Chronicles, you have God saying, and they did evil, and they did evil, and they did evil about the northern kings, that is, the tribes, the however many, I guess it was ten, ten tribes. Um, but you rarely, God rarely says that about any of the kings of Judah. Very rarely. But here we have, here we have, a king of Judah, it's being said about that he did evil, and that was Solomon. God never said that of David. God did say something similar that he said about Solomon. He says in 1 Kings 15, God says, David uh, was great, and then he says, except for Uriah. Well, similarly, God says about Solomon, Solomon was great except for going after idols. But then he says something even worse, uh, and that is that Solomon was evil. That Solomon was evil. His wives turned his heart away. And um, we can't overlook that. We can't, we can't, you know, we have to look at both sides of that, both sides of Solomon's life. Now, I will direct your attention to one more passage uh, on Solomon, I think is very, very interesting. So go over to uh, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. That's between uh, Ezra and Esther. Book of Nehemiah. Last chapter, chapter 13. And we find there something really interesting. We find um, it being said... Uh, about Solomon, something. So chapter 13, verse 26. Let's back up. Um, well, let's back up in context at least. So what happens here is um, it is found that the men of Israel were marrying outside uh, the country and more, more significantly outside the covenant. They were marrying pagan uh, wives. So then verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? So the speaker is saying, what you're doing, that's what Solomon did. He married outside the covenant. He married pagan women. Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Let me read that again. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. And then the last line. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. So this is much, much later than Solomon's time. This is, uh, you know many, many generations later. And we have a comment, we have a commentary on the life of Solomon and his uh, political alliances with other kings, in the, pagan kings, in the, uh, in the area and how that backfired on him, how that ruined him. Um, conservative Bible scholars believe that, that Solomon turned, uh, repented and turned back to the Lord at the end of his life. I believe... I believe that Ecclesiastes bears that out. I believe as we go through the book, you'll see that uh, that this this book, Ecclesiastes, which uh, we believe was was written uh, late in Solomon's life. Again, there's no proof that it was even Solomon, but I think it was written late in his life, and I think that he had sadly but faithfully at least come to 
uh, the realization that he had wasted his life. In fact, I think chapter 2, which we'll get into next, I think that really uh, bears that out. I think it really shows that he was looking back with a lot of remorse over his life. So anyway, that's the uh, introduction and um, the 30,000 foot view of uh, the author of uh, Ecclesiastes. I hope that this is um, um, uh, profitable for you. I hope that it builds your faith. I hope that you'll get some excitement going on with this book because it's a really interesting book. It's not a bad, depressing book. It's really a good book. One of the commentators um, that I have consulted on the book of Ecclesiastes has called Ecclesiastes a major apologetic work. A major apologetic work. Do you know what that means? Apologetic doesn't mean making an apology. It means giving an answer. It means, like that verse in the, in the New Testament, where it says, Be ready to give everyone an answer who asks you for the hope that is in you, that is within you. That is what Ecclesiastes is. It's actually an apologetic, which is kind of a, um, kind of a generic gospel. I, and I don't mean generic in a, in, a, in a bad way. I just mean the Old Testament version of the gospel. The Old Testament version of the gospel. So, there we go. Next time, we'll uh, be looking at Solomon's reminiscing, looking back on his life, and, and he brings that into his meditation on the state of man, how man's life is, uh, is, is trying to tell us something, the way God let man live his life, the way God made an environment, a living environment for man to live in, how it actually is a message. There's a message that's built into that. And uh, Solomon will, will draw it out. He'll draw it out in this book and give it to us. And I'll just give you a spoiler. There's seven pieces to that message. We've already seen one. We've already seen one. And that is life is broken. Life is broken. And we're going to see six more pieces to this message. And uh hope you'll hang on and, uh, and uh, catch all those uh, with us and uh and and be blessed all right take care